Hey, what's going on? It's Dr. Mike T. Nelson here back with the Flex Diet Podcast. And the wonderful wifey and I are still in South Padre, Texas as of this recording. But we will be headed back home very soon. And I still wanted to get a podcast out to you. Got a bunch more guests coming up in December and especially at the start of the new year. But in the meantime, I've got a rebroadcast here I did with my good friend, and he is also a M3 one-on-one uh, client training for a strongman, which he's been doing awesome at, the one and only Dr. Dr. Tommy Wood. We were able to see him briefly in Austin, Texas on the way down. He was in town then for the Formula One race that he does some consulting for. And we happened to be passing through at the same time. So we went out and had some epic barbecue at Black's Barbecue, which it was crazy busy that night. But it was awesome to share a protein-filled meal with him. So in this rebroadcast, this is the intro before the short intro. I was recorded live at our good buddy Dr. Ben House's place at the Flow Retreat Center in Costa Rica. We talk all about glucose and insulin. The reason I wanted to rebroadcast this was I think this is a super important topic and there's a lot of great information out there on it and there's a lot of pretty horrible and just flat out wrong information out there also. So enjoy this podcast with the one and only Dr. Tommy Wood. What's going on? It's Dr. Mike T. Nelson here back on the Flex Diet podcast. And today I have a very special interview from my buddy, Dr. Tommy Wood. This was actually recorded live from the jungles of Costa Rica when we were down there this past March. So you will hear some jungle noises in the background. Hopefully it's not too annoying. I tried to edit them out as best I could. But we talk all about glucose, health parameters, insulin resistance, sumo wrestlers, how you want healthy fat stores, and a lot more. Dr. Tommy is a wealth of information here. And if you like more information and a complete system of how to use all of this, check out the Flex Diet. Go to www.flexdiet.com. Dot com. Here's the interview with Dr. Tommy Wood. How's it going? Good. Good. We're here in the Costa Rican jungle with Dr. <laughs> Tommy Wood. And do you want to give us just a little bit of background on here? I guess we should say why we're down here. We're down mm-hmm. here at Dr. Ben House's place at the Bro Research Center in the middle of the Costa Rica jungle. And you gave a super cool talk. One of them is what we'll get into here about glucose and insulin, probably not what people are thinking about. What is your background for people who live under a rock? And yeah, under? probably not under a rock. I, there aren't, I'm not that well known, which I quite like actually. So I currently work as a research assistant professor, so research faculty at the University of Washington. Most of my work is in brain injury. Before then, over several years, I did an undergraduate degree in biochemistry, went to medical school, worked in London as an, in internal medicine for a couple of years moved to Norway for my PhD, which was in physiology and neuroscience, and then 
moved over to Seattle where I am now. So I have two main hats, one being looking at a brain injury, particularly pediatric or neonatal brain injury. And then another one where over several years, I've worked with a lot of athletes as a, I guess, a journeyman coach. So as an athlete myself, first as a rower, then I started to do more coaching when I was in med school, interested in all aspects of performance. So just researching that kind of on my own. And then slowly over time, I've been integrating that more and more into my active research. So I still work with some athletic groups, some personal clients, and then some sort of larger athletic groups. Like now, the more formal part of my research, in addition to all the brain stuff that I do. And you are the CSO of Brill Research Center, is that correct? Yes. Yeah, can you so confirm this? I can con confirm this. I conferred the, ter uh, the uh, title of CSO on myself. I used it as a chief snake officer because the first time I came here to the jungle, I was bitten <laughs> by a local venomous snake. But Ben has then kindly said that it can also be the chief scientific officer. We've just finished analyzing our first study that yeah. you helped out with and took part in as well. You were both a scientist and a subject. Yeah, that's fun. And hopefully we're going to publish that soon. So the first of many things like research projects we'll work on together, hopefully. Yeah. And that, what I like about it too, is that it's very real world based. Yeah. Everyone's like, oh, we want more research and we want it actually in lifters, but there's as you know, not a lot of budget for that and different things happen. And even just trying to source subjects for the study is... Lots of people are like, yes, I want to do this. And then you're like, hey, here's your opportunity. Maybe you should volunteer. Oh, I'm busy, bro. I got a <laughs> life. I got stuff going on. So, yeah. yeah, most most sports science research is done either in sort of sedentary populations as part of like public health efforts, or it's done in undergrad students who you can convince to come into the lab and you have a lot more experience doing than I do, but. It's not particularly representative of some of the populations that we work with or the Ben who runs this place works with, which is the very experienced lifters who can lift a lot of weight, how do different factors affect their performance and that's hopefully, or, and long-term health. And that's something we can hopefully. Yeah. Awesome. And before we talk about insulin and glucose, I just have to poke the bear on this one because I, I heard a rumor you're going to be doing a carnivore diet for a while. Yeah, I'm going to. I'm going to do at least a month, probably six to eight weeks of a carnivore diet. And I'm going to do it with somebody else in this health arena. I'm not sure whether he wants to be called out on it publicly. Yeah, I so just texted him today, but we'll leave him <laughs> anonymous. We'll, we'll for leave, now. leave him anonymous. And part of it is just to get an idea of, of what it's like. I'm good friends with Paul Saladino, who is the cut. He calls himself the carnivore MD. I just FYI, I'm not a big believer in the idea that plants are out to get us or, any, or that carbs are bad or anything like that. The broccoli is going to get you, bro. Yeah, broccoli is going to trash my thyroid and all yep. this other stuff. But it's an interesting thing. I like being able to try these things out so that I have real world experience in them. I've done pretty much every, I've done paleo, various low fat, low carb, keto. And it's just nice to be able to tinker with those things. So yeah, see what it ends up doing. I'm going to do some, I'm going to do just for you, Mike. I'll do a 500 <laughs> meter row before and after to nice. see whether anything happens to my glycolytic abilities. No um, 2K, I heard. The 2K that, was voted down. Man, no way. I will do. But you used to row competitively, so you know what like a balls out 2K is like. Yeah, and there's two parts to me. One is that I know if I sat down and did a 2K now, I would suck compared to what yeah, I've yeah. done it previously. <laughs> that's going to be really hard for me, but also I know how painful it is. I would much rather do a Cooper run test to, uh, that. than a 2K anytime. So maybe I could probably stretch to doing that as well, and then we can test my systems and see where the carnivore 
did anything. Particularly ketogenic diets haven't worked well for me because I tend to undereat. So uh. I'm just not hungry. And then I find it hard to maintain mass. And I don't think that's specifically a ketogenic diet thing. I'm just not eating enough calories. Yeah. And so I'm going to, I know I'm going to have to work hard at that on this diet too, but we'll see what happens. Yeah. I, any predictions or do you just want to hold them until you're doing the diet and done with it? I think I'll, I think I'll probably lean out a bit and maybe lose, lose a bit of both. But I, my guess is I'll probably get leaner. My protein intake will probably go up. My total, my total calories will probably come down a bit. So my guess is I'll lean out a bit and I don't think it will have a huge effect on my performance, particularly because I don't train specifically for performance. So I don't think much is really. And previously when I've carbs or something, I've, I don't notice anything. I, yeah. I feel okay. Yeah, that's my guess. If I were to guess is that you may not see a huge change, but pretty cool of you to do that. And I think you're doing some labs before and after. Yes, yeah, so I'm planning to at least the basics. If I really want to do all the stuff that I wanted to do, I'd be out a couple of grand. Yeah, and I'd, <laughs> I'm not that I'm not that committed or at least to the testing side. So I'll do a bit of that and I'll certainly do blood sugar ketones because I have all the equipment to do all that stuff. Yeah. So I'll do that as well. Cool. Awesome. Speaking of blood ketones and glucose, you have a gave a great talk down here. It was awesome. Nice. Loved it about glucose and insulin. So if you want to, how do you think your perspective is different from what is commonly taught? I guess we should clear up for the listeners. What is the common accepted theory of insulin and glucose? Yeah. So everybody thinks of insulin as the main hormone that regulates glucose. And they think that it does that by binding to the insulin receptor which then increases transportation of glute receptors to the surface of the cell. Like glute, four, glute, four, glute four in the skeletal muscle, for instance. And then there's more transporters, more channels for glucose to go through and more glucose goes into the cell. Insulin directly increasing uptake of glucose into cells. And I talked about why I think we think that. And it's because of the way insulin was discovered. So it was discovered as the hormone that is missing and then required for survival in type 1 diabetics. So people who can't make insulin because they lose the beta cells in the pancreas. And this was discovered in the early 1920s. For some decades before that, people had just been, they knew it was something to do with the pancreas. So they were injecting animal pancreatic extracts into mm. people with diabetes, type 1 diabetes, and seeing some benefit improved sugar control. And they've mainly tested it by how much glucose is ending up in the urine. And so we've always thought about insulin being this thing that you give externally and then it goes around the body and it pushes glucose into cells. And when you use it that way, that's true. However, if you think about how insulin actually acts in the normally functioning body where it's produced in the pancreas, it has like a series of effects that, well, and then the final one is that it, in high doses is it pushes glucose into cells. So... It's made in the pancreas. The first thing that it does is it by, is it active or inhibits alpha cell production. So insulin made in beta cells, glucagon made in alpha cells, and it reduces or inhibits the release of glucagon. Glucagon being one of the hormones that antagonizes insulin or raises blood glucose. So it's one of the hormones that tells the liver to increase glucose production through gluconeogenesis, stimulates some of the breakdown of tissues to push that process forward so basically get fuel from whatever source is possible from whatever storage you have so either yeah. glycogen in the liver or protein in the muscles or the fat tissue cortisol does something as part of that process as well potentially and so the first thing it does is it shuts off glucagon and then 
It goes to the liver through the portal vein. So there's a vein that connects the pancreas to the liver. It's where all, that's where all your food gets absorbed too. So it goes to the liver first. And then the high insulin and low glucagon act on the liver to stop gluconeogenesis. So to stop the production of glucose by the liver through that process that we were just talking. So the first thing that insulin does, if you eat and your insulin goes up, the first thing that it does is tell the body to not make any of its own glucose. That's one of the most important things it does. And then from there, it goes out into the systemic circulation. And depending on the dose, and people have done some very cool dose-dependent studies, they'll isolate an arm or a thigh or look at the whole body, and they'll infuse insulin so they get insulin at a certain level. And then they'll look at glucose, they'll look at amino acids, and then they'll look at fatty acids. And you see the first thing that insulin does at very low, a very low level, the mid range of what you might get after a standard meal is it turns off the breakdown or the release of fats from fat tissues. It, hmm. it inhibits lipolysis. And then at the same time, it's also inhibiting proteolysis. So it's inhibiting the breakdown of muscle tissue. So systemically, I think of insulin as an anti-catabolic hormone. So the first thing it's doing is it's stopping the natural breakdown of tissues. So your tissues are actually continuously turning over they are continuously breaking down and being built up. And it's in this continuous flux. And so when insulin shows up, the uptake of amino acids into cells, lipids into fat tissue, basically stays about the same. And then insulin just stops the other half, which is the breakdown. And so if you think about it as like a bathtub model, right? If you want to fill yeah. your bathtub, you can do two things. You can block the water leaving it, or you can open the tap. And most people think that insulin opens the tap, but what it actually does is it puts a plug in the water coming. And then you get a net accumulation of either amino acids or fat tissue because of that. Doesn't high levels of testosterone dramatically blunt catabolic effects too, as a side note? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. So insulin is by no means the only player right. in the system. Which may explain um, why, if you go into bodybuilders, why they use exogenous amounts of insulin, testosterone, other drugs. Not yeah. that we're recommending that. We're no. just saying from demonstration of physiologic effects, if you go to the way end of the extremes. Yeah. And so there, are, as you then increase insulin levels beyond that, you do start to stimulate glucose metabolism, so the, the, the oxidation of glucose for energy, and then finally you stimulate glucose uptake. So insulin does do that, but just at higher levels. And if you administer very large doses of exogenous insulin, as a bodybuilder might do, and you also make sure to eat enough carbohydrate with, because yeah. that's the danger is you can drive blood glucose very low. Yeah, you do potentially that, die. And potentially die. <laughs> like it's a, you go into a hypoglycemic coma, and that, that has happened. But if you do that, then potentially at super physiological levels, insulin may be anabolic. But general day-to-day -day life, it's not. But you can, as with everything, manipulate the system to, if you're trying to eke out extra bit of mass gain, which probably most people listening to this would not be yeah. wanting to do. So just by eating my two Pop-Tarts, I'm not going to get a high enough release of insulin to get close to that super physiologic level, correct? No, absolutely not. So what's happening when your blood sugar spikes and then comes down after you eat your Pop-Tarts, the, uh, the blood sugar going up is coming from your, largely from your Pop-Tarts. But the main thing that insulin is doing in that scenario is telling your liver, hey, we don't need to make any glucose because there's Pop-Tarts on the way. So that's the uh, so it's shutting thing. down the production. It's yeah. not necessarily a. I'm using my little air quotes here. A disposal agent. 
Exactly. Because that's what's classically taught, right? Oh, I eat Pop-Tarts, insulin comes out, insulin shoves all this stuff into tissue, which is true at a high enough level, but it's also having another effect. Yeah. And and the other effect is by like on a day-to-day basis in a healthy person is by far the vast majority of what insulin is doing. And it's interesting because if you then get into a state like type 2 diabetes, where you're insulin resistant, you have high levels of circulating blood sugar. The majority of that is unregulated glucose production by the liver. It's not because insulin isn't shoving glucose into cells. And glucose uptake into cells in type 2 diabetes is actually high. Those cells Hmm. are still taking up loads of glucose. It's just there's so much coming out of the liver that the system isn't regulated. So most of it is happening. Like it's extra glucose that you're making, which you shouldn't be. Like that's the big effect that's causing high blood sugar in type 2 diabetics. It's not that the cells aren't listening to the signal or not taking up the glucose. And so that's why certain drugs that affect the production at the liver are effective for type 2 diabetics. Yeah. Yeah. And so anything that you can do to improve insulin sensitivity pretty much in, in any cell will buffer that process. But yeah, there's any, so something that improves metabolism of the liver will definitely help. There were some, there were a class of drugs called the glitazones, yeah. which were PPAR agonists. Weren't um, they from, are they the ones from the lizards? No, that's the... Oh, I'm mixing them up. Yeah, that's exenatide, which is, a yes. G, which is yeah. So exenatide is from the, and that is, that's a GLP-1. GLP-1. Okay, you're right. Yeah. But so these, there's a PPAR agonist and it increased insulin sensitivity. But then what happened was because people's fat became more insulin sensitive, they were really, then they were, their cells were much better at taking up more fat. So like the amount of fatness that you can get is like your metabolic buffer in this whole system. And so... One of the downsides of making a tissue more insulin sensitive, particularly if it's the fat tissue, is that it will get fatter. And then there were, the reason why they don't use those drugs is because some of them cause cardiac issues. But but you can create insulin sensitivity, but that's not always a that's not always a good thing if you're then trying to think about overall weight and other things. But we would actually want to take fuels and have more. I think of it as sinks to dispose of it in. All right, if we can take these fuels and drop them into the liver, if the liver was low on glycogen mm. or the muscle or fat tissue, is if we start having fat tissue that is becoming more insulin resistant, so we've taken that away as a sink to put substrates, right, things floating around in the blood, we may potentially get leaner, which is debatable, but then we start having health consequences because of that, correct? Yeah, so I think of... Uh fat stores as our main metabolic buffer and pretty much all of the data i can't say all but most of the data in this arena suggests that having healthy fat tissue that isn't quote unquote full like you haven't filled your stores and what constitutes the capacity that you have there are multiple different things that feed into that but as soon as your fat stores are full for whatever that is for you that's when you've lost your buffer and then you start to see this overspill. You're not able to store anything. And then fats just end up getting stored wherever they can get stored. So sometimes they're on top of the liver, the pancreas, the muscle tissue. And so you've lost that sink. You can buffer that again with physical activity. So that's obviously something yeah. that is very protective. And uh, yesterday we talked about sumo wrestlers who have stored vast amounts of body fat. But being so active and training so frequently, their muscles are a huge sink for glucose, actually keep them metabolically healthy while they're still active. And even in most people, the vast majority, so 75% of all glucose uptake goes into the muscle tissue in people eating a standard mixed diet. At least 75% of that 
but potentially more, is non-insulin dependent. So hmm. it's basically, it's just stimulated by the movement of the muscle tissue. And so just activating the muscles causes the translocation of glute forward to the surface. So you don't need insulin to do that. And I would argue that you're probably going to be in much better health overall. If you're not relying on insulin to do that, and you're just doing it because you're activating the muscles through whatever exercise or movement is you're doing. And then having more muscle tissue is going to potentially give you a, a bigger buffer. Yeah. What are your thoughts about... My bias is also movement, right? So first, move as much as you can. Don't worry about what fuel you're using. Mm -hmm. Don't be so hyper-specific because most people just don't move enough, don't exercise. But what about a population that's doing that pretty high frequently? Their step count is good. They're doing formal exercise. Do you think it's of a benefit to do something like fasted cardio or ways to increase the burning of fatty acids? So that you're, in essence, pulling more fuel through the fat cell to allow that to be a little bit bigger buffer if needed? Yeah, that's a good question. I think... That's my bias. You yeah, can tell me if it I, sucks. No, I, I, don't think, I don't think it, do suck. it does suck at all. And I, I definitely am a big uh, proponent of your idea of metabolic flexibility. I certainly agree that you should be able to use the right fuel at the right time for the right for the job that you're trying to do. And so that requires capacity at both ends of the spectrum. And most people, again, if we, so going back to the general population, most people just aren't really giving that aerobic system time to really rely on fat. You're Correct. Continuous, you're continuously suppressing lipolysis by just like continuously eating. And it's not necessarily because, you know, it's the carbs or the carbs make you fat, but if insulin is high enough, you're not relying on those body like tissue stores to then run the system. And so, Doing periods of that, I think, are definitely going to be beneficial. And when I've worked, particularly with endurance, who are going to rely a lot on that system, fasted cardio, sleep low, those kind of tactics to stretch, not stress, but you push yeah, or push use them. them, I think are definitely beneficial in terms of the overall adaptations. Yeah, cool. What about this line, which is a quote I stole from Jeff Volick, and I've used it a lot, but I always wonder in my head about simplistic codes, and maybe I made it too simplistic but that insulin is a fuel selector switch. So higher levels of insulin kind of pushes you to use carbohydrates or glucose, lower levels push you to use fat from a, would you agree with that? Just from a fuel selection standpoint, obviously insulin does more than that. Yeah. So I think it's, uh, it's definitely, it's like an, it's an integrator of fuel metabolism, largely via the liver. And that's definitely, you know, and that's definitely you just think about all the things that it does, even if it's not pushing glucose into cells, what it's doing is it's reducing the availability of endogenous substrates, which are largely right. going to be amino acids and fats once you, particularly once you get past whatever liver glycogen you might have. So it is then putting you into a state where you're going to be using carbohydrates as your main fuel source. So that's, so where insulin acts in that system maybe isn't so well understood or I don't think it's described as accurately as it could be, but in reality, that is what it is. Yeah. Cool. What other parts do you think are misunderstood about insulin that are useful to the average person listening? So I think most important thing to me, what other than just having a better idea of what it does and when it should be doing it, is that I spend a lot of time in the low carb is 
And insulin is definitely the bad guy, right? Like the boogeyman, in, right? The boogeyman. And it does, it does. So it's, it is elevated insulin is associated with, or it integrates with a lot of other pro growth pathways, like the IGF-1 pathway. And they integrate through different mechanisms, but like through mTOR. And if you're continuously stimulating that, you potentially increase risk of cancer and some other types of diabetes as, as well. And yes, that's definitely true. However, insulin and normal insulin signaling, including potential spikes or some peaks in insulin are very useful. So you need normal insulin signaling for various good things to happen in the brain. And just like saying, getting your insulin as low as possible, I think is very unhelpful. And in that same space, we talk about insulin, people talk about insulin resistance as a root cause of modern disease. And it is insulin resistance. So which would be anything in the spectrum of dysregulated glucose metabolism, basically that's the easiest way for us to measure it at least. So elevated fasting blood glucose, elevated C-peptide, anything like that. Triglyceride HDL ratio, you can all use these as proxies. Um, all of those things, insulin resistance is associated with Alzheimer's disease, cardiovascular disease, types of cancer, like I said. And so people think of it as this like core central thing, but in reality, insulin resistance doesn't just happen. So what annoys me is when people say insulin resistance is the problem. But what is it that caused the insulin resistance? I think that's much more interesting and much more important. So you can't just stop at insulin resistance and say, hey, we know what the problem is, it's insulin resistance. Because usually then the answer is eat less carbs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> where it is, when there could be many other things feeding into that. So that's the most important thing that I think people need to know is that insulin resistance isn't the end point. There are things that feed into it. And the answer isn't always eat less carbs, although that can absolutely help. Yeah, but I think I always think of the eating less carbs as what context the person we're talking yeah, about. Absolutely. If it's Bob, whose butt looks like a couch cushion, who doesn't move at all and is eating like 7-Eleven Slurpees with no ice. Yeah, cutting back on the carbs is probably going to help Bob. If it's a CrossFit athlete doing two-a-days, I see them like not eating enough carbs to even yeah. fuel their exercise. Yeah, And those two populations are completely different, right? You're talking about one who's pretty healthy, physically active, one who may even have underlying pathologies, not physically active. And it seems, especially in health and fitness, we want to conflate both of those. And we always just talk about the thing and not necessarily the context of what it actually means in each area. Yeah. I think what I've seen a lot of is people who work in populations with a pathology, obesity, types of diabetes. They have these strategies that may include extended fasting. Some of them are anti-protein for whatever reason. It's a whole other podcast. <laughs> uh, I, and I've actually seen clinicians like prescribe protein levels that I thought would probably should constitute malpractice, but that's yeah. like a whole different. Oh yeah. And so like they're using these tools in sick people when they can be, where they will absolutely be beneficial in for some period of time. So you need to move on to the next thing. But the people who are listening to that message are not those people. They're the people who are hyper-focused and hyper-interested in health. So you're right. We, I've worked with CrossFitters who thought, I need to eat a low-protein diet because protein causes cancer. I need to eat a low-carbohydrate diet because that will make me the optimal fat burner. And, oh, I should intermittent fast because autophagy. Of course, autophagy, and, bro. Yeah, because autophagy. And then you're eating, averaging like 1,500 calories a day on a guy who wants to train 20 hours a week. Like... Good luck. What do you expect is going to happen? Then he turns up, thyroid's trashed, libido completely in the, in the toilet. And that's exactly, so that's, I, I think that the problem is that 
the message is coming from people who work in pathological populations and the message is being listened to by people who are active and trying to do everything at the same time. And then that combination often really hurt the listener. Yeah, I've been the same argument because I get hate mail from like everybody now about <laughs> ketones that like people are like, oh, you're so anti-ketone. The ketone diet. It's like, what context? So for a while I had the ketones and the CrossFit people who would come in and eight weeks would go by and they felt great. And all of a sudden they felt like they got hit by a truck and they can't figure out what's going on. Yeah. But if you look at actual pathologies, type 2 diabetes, maybe TMI or TBI, head trauma, much of other things, like I think a ketogenic diet could potentially be amazing. Yeah, absolutely. But I don't always see it go the other way. Just because it's really good for some type of pathology doesn't mean that it's going to be the cat's meow for performance and yeah. vice versa. Yeah. So just because anything works in, any, in one population, and that's great, and we want as much of that information, as many of those studies as possible. But then to generalize that is, I think, is a big misstep far too many people are doing. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So as we wrap up, two, one, you mentioned a few blood tests. Are there some simple blood tests or other markers, performance things? If people are listening to this and trying to decide, do they have any insulin resistance? Mm. And how would they know? Yeah. So I think the, the things that you mentioned, fasting blood sugar is a good one. What number do you want to see for that? Under 90. Under 90. Like 80 to 90 is ideal. Okay. If somebody's on a ketogenic diet, it may well go lower than that. Sure. But in, some, in populations eating a mixed diet, 80 to 90 seems to be the sweet spot in terms of disease. Triglyceride to HDL ratio, ideally less than two if you're working in milligrams per deciliter. Yeah. Closer to one if possible. Lower threshold, maybe 1.5 in populations who aren't Caucasian, they t tend to see less of an increase in triglycerides when they start to become insulin resistant. And you can certainly look at things if you're willing to spend a bit more. C-peptide gives you an idea of how much insulin was released the whole 24 hours before. We talked about that before. Fasting yeah. insulin isn't as good, but it's another measure. It might be easier to get. Then I think one really nice thing to do is just like tracking your own. So you don't need to do this on a lab test. You just get a glucometer to have at home. So we talked about how high is your blood sugar spiking after a meal? Ideally, it shouldn't go up by more than, definitely not more than 50, ideally not more than 30. So okay. certainly it's, it's 90, you have breakfast, it goes up to 120, 125. Within an hour to 90 minutes, it's back down closer to where it was initially. That's great. Anything where the peak is a lot higher than that. So the peak is more than 50. So say it's initially it was okay. So maybe you were like 95 to start, but then it goes up to 145 or 150. It takes a little bit longer to get down, not till two hours, or a little bit longer. Then you may be thinking, okay, this is, this is where you're, maybe there are some issues going on. So that's all super easy stuff to get. You can like any primary care physician would give you a fasting blood glucose and a basic lipid panel where you can get triglycerides to HDL ratio and a glucometer can be like 20 bucks. So it's definitely super easy to start. And if you were to add something, like if you think you've got high glucose excursions, like a glycomark test might be useful. Yeah, that's definitely useful in populations eating a mixed diet. Glycomark is 1,5-anhydroglucotol, and it, you get it in the diet, you get it in your food, and it competes for reuptake with glucose. So when glucose go typically above 180 milligrams of deciliter, so when your glucose goes above that, you start to lose glucose in the urine. And then what happens is your glycomark goes down. So if you're low glycomark, that's a kind of a sign that you're getting big glucose spikes. It doesn't seem to work in people eating low carbohydrate diets because they're actually consuming less 
of the one five and so it artificially lowers it so when I've, we've seen a lot of ketogenic people eating ketogenic diets it's always low but we know they're not spiking uh, blood gotcha. sugar. we didn't mention hba1c okay that is a decent and again any primary care physician would get you that it's a decent marker as long as you're testing against yourself so yeah it's something to track over time rather than say you get a one-off and that's good or bad yeah. unless it's like very high like Six, six or, six or point, something yeah, crazy. Six, six or above six. If it's like in the five somewhere, or if it is above six and you do something about it, watching it track over time and having your own data to compare to is useful. Having like my 5.5 compared to your 5.5 in terms of average blood sugar, all that kind of stuff is completely different. It doesn't yeah. necessarily, it's not comparable between people, but within yourself is useful. Fructosamine is another one that's like a shorter term. It's like a short term HbA1c, like 30 days rather than three months. So those things too, but I'm, I always like, I always think of, are these all different ways of telling you the same thing? And, right. and probably they are. So, yeah, so yeah. If, you get a couple <laughs> of them, if you get a couple of them and they agree, then you probably have an idea of the picture without having to do all of them. Cool. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today. I don't know. Do you still do any consulting work? Are you pretty much full or how would people find you? Or maybe you just want to hide in the jungle of Costa Rica and not <laughs> <Yeah>. be found. <laughs> yeah. I, um, people can find me on Instagram at Dr. Tommy Wood. Usually I'll post stuff on there a couple of times a week. I mainly do full-time research now. And then w when I do work with people, it's usually through somebody else. So there are a handful of physicians who will reach out to me if I can help interpret some labs or come up with some ideas to help their, help their clients or patients. So I'm, I act more, more and more as a consultant rather than direct, a direct physician. But if somebody is certain I might be of use, they're always welcome to message me on Instagram or uh, my website is drragnar.com and find me on there. And that's literally your middle name. That's my middle name. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so people was always, I don't get, so that's my middle name. It's also my handle on Twitter. But by the time I, I like succumbed to Instagram, somebody had already taken it. So no, that's no. why the handle is different. But yeah, so any of those, if I can answer any questions, I definitely will. Cool. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks. Greatly appreciate it. So big thanks to Dr. Tommy Wood there for a wonderful interview. Again, recorded live in Costa Rica at the Flow Retreat Center there. Big thanks to Dr. Ben House for having myself down there along with Dr. Tommy and everyone for two weeks this past March. You can go back and also listen to the podcast I did with Dr. Eric Helms. We talked about our experience there in Costa Rica and he talked about also some work on a periodization for training. So this podcast has been brought to you by the Flex Diet Certification. If you want eight different interventions for training and nutrition recovery to use both with yourself and with your clients, based on the concept of metabolic flexibility and flexible dieting, check that out at flexdiet.com, F-L-E-X-D-I-E-T.com. And if you enjoyed this, drop us a review on the old iTunes or whatever your favorite podcast listening devices. We will read each one of them and do our best to incorporate your feedback. So thank you very much. Greatly appreciate it. Talk to you soon. I have a good mind to go home. If you had a good mind, you wouldn't be here in the first place. <laughs>